Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. Every week, we talk about this crazy time in American politics, break down a couple stories, and try and make sense of things. And I'm Charlie Warzel, senior tech writer here over at BuzzFeed. Charlie, what are we going to be talking about this week? So today we're going to talk about uh, the Capitol Police and how they deal with threats, which is timely in the wake of this uh, week's shooting. Uh, We're going to talk about the Shakespeare in the Park Julius Caesar play and how that has ignited a sort of peculiar controversy. And lastly, we're going to talk about what happens if Robert Mueller gets fired uh, and, and how does that all play out. Lastly, just so you guys know, it is 11 a.m. Thursday on the East Coast, and I'm telling you that because by the time you listen to this, who knows what could have happened. Joining us now is Sarah Mims, our DC editor who edits Capitol Hill coverage. Hey, Sarah. Hey, how's it going? Um, So on Wednesday morning, early morning, there was a pretty uh, horrific shooting in Alexandria at baseball practice uh, for the congressional baseball game. Five people were shot, including Congressman Steve Scalise, who as of Thursday is still in pretty critical condition after a really bad gunshot wound to the hip. Could have been a lot worse, though, and the reason it wasn't was because there were two Capitol Police officers there uh, who were also injured, but their injuries don't appear to be life-threatening. So I just want to talk a little bit about what happened yesterday and also how Capitol Police and Congress deal with threats, of which they get many more than we hear about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, after the shooting on Wednesday, um, members of Congress uh, in the House, they all sat down together and had a long discussion about the shooting. And and what came out of that was a lot of people saying, we feel like we've been getting a lot more threats than we usually do. Um, Congressman Dave Schweikert, who was a Republican, he was telling reporters after that he had reported four threats on Tuesday, the day before the shooting, wow. including one that he felt like was a threat specifically to his young daughter. Mm. Um, a lot of Democrats talked about this as well, particularly uh, Congressman Al Green, who has started the process or is considering starting the process for Trump's impeachment, obviously has been the target of a lot of threats. Um, so, yeah, there's just this sense among members of Congress that it's getting worse than it usually is. And, and that's not universal among members, but there are certainly some members who are getting just hammered with this stuff and they've been reporting it as much as they can. But obviously, in the wake of a shooting like this, it becomes a lot more serious. Yeah. So when uh, when when a threat like this comes in to the Capitol Police and is reported, can you tell us a little bit about the sort of the procedure and, 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 and how they ad- address these? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of depends on the nature of the threat. Capitol Police works very closely, not only with federal law enforcement, with the FBI. Secret Service. The Secret Service, <laughs> absolutely, but also with the Metropolitan Police Department here in D.C. And then, of course, yesterday with the Alexandria Police Department and other local law enforcement. Um, so I think it really depends on the nature of these threats. Members of Congress do send them to Capitol Police and sort of see what comes of it from there. One interesting thing I learned yesterday is that... Um, 
if these are phone calls that come in over the Capitol switchboard, um, there's actually no phone number. So those in particular are very difficult to track down and members are getting increasingly concerned about that because they can't identify where it's coming from or if it's the same person 17 times or, or what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that strikes me every time something happens and, you know, like there have been some horrific ones in the last five, six years, Gabby Giffords, who was in her district, getting shot, and then this incident, um, or threats to the Capitol, um, you take it for granted as someone who goes every day up there just how safe it is. Um, I mean, we it's, it's a very public space. You can walk right up to the building. It's very free moving, but they're, how much the Capitol Police are just on all the time to yeah. protect that place is, is you know, impressive and we're all really grateful for it. And then you have things like uh, that woman in 2013 who tried to, or allegedly tried to drive into a barricade and was shot by Capitol Police officers. And then I think just a few years later, that man who flew in in a gyrocopter. Yes. And... <laughs> Which is basically like a combination of a helicopter and a bicycle that is run by one person. And he, w- he was doing it to protest campaign finance or something. But As you do. I, you break. <laughs> I just remember being in the building that day and the whole thing is locked down and there are police everywhere and they're telling us not to go anywhere, or like try to go outside. And there's yeah. just this man in a gyrocopter on the front lawn who's being surrounded by police because they have no idea what the hell he's doing there. Yeah. And it really could be anything. The um, the 2013 incident was I, I was I was standing outside smoking a cigarette when that when that all went down and um, the the, you know, the woman was driving up uh, the street you could hear gunshots and I was actually having a cigarette with a Capitol Hill police officer who heard it come over and like literally like picked me up and dragged me in the building I mean there were there yeah. was no there was it was it was like 30 seconds of just like I didn't really know what was going on but he clearly did and he went into action so quickly um pulled me into the building and just everyone mobilized incredibly fast I mean the the, the rate at which they are able to react to stuff is pretty yeah incredible. I'm interested in sort of the the normal operating procedure. Um, I I think a lot of people didn't realize that the Capitol Police would go to a a softball practice like this. So yeah, tell me a little about that. They actually wouldn't have been there under most normal circumstances. And the reason why the two officers were there was because Steve Scalise, the congressman who ended up getting pretty seriously wounded, um, is a member of leadership, and uh, he is the majority whip. Um, there are certain levels of leadership where you get an assigned detail, and I think it's like majority whip and up, right? Yeah, that's like, right. So there, there are 10 members of Congress, five in the House, five in the Senate, who have uh, capital a Capitol Police security detail with them at all times. Right. And so the reason why they were they were even there to begin with was because Scalise loves baseball. He loves baseball practice. The Congressional Baseball Game, which is a charity event, uh, raises, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for charity. And um, Scalise has always been really involved in this. And so, I, I mean, had they not been there, it could have been 
so much worse. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of members were saying if Scalise had skipped practice or left early, you know, it could have been so much worse than it actually was. Does, yeah. Does that, what, what do you think that that might mean for sort of the the future of this? I mean, obviously there's been, as you said, we, you said earlier, there have been instances before um, and maybe, you know, in their districts too and, and where you haven't had the Capitol Police, but sort of out and about in the immediate area. Do you think that will change anything or have you heard anything about that? I think a lot of members had questions about their personal security yesterday specifically. I mean, people were shaken, right? They were the crying. They were, you know, they, they had seen this, the peop- the members that were there had experienced this pretty traumatizing event and then you know had to sort of figure out what was next and a lot of members as i understand it i know one of our reporters went into this a bit yesterday were like what can we do for our personal safety and security and you know the answer is is that they are allowed to use their sort of funds that they have to pay their staff or you know decorate their office or each member gets a set amount of money every year um, to pay for security. This has kind of been an issue going back to 2011 when Gabby Giffords was shot at a constituent event back in Arizona. Um, She survived that. Um, But since then, a lot of members have been raising these concerns and and especially with the threats over the last few months. Um, Another thing that was raised uh, this week after the shooting they actually can legally use their campaign money, mm. uh, any leftover campaign money to hire security um, to help them back home as long as they have um, a threat that they have presented to law enforcement. Um, so not just anyone can do it, but if there's a specific threat, then they're allowed to do that. So that's something that they're considering. But a lot of members, I mean, at least the ones I've spoken to, don't, they like, they like to be able to just like talk to their constituents and you know walk around and like if you have like two (laughs) heavily armed security guards next to you it's a lot harder to get that one-on-one time with the people that are voting for you i mean i know mark sanford representative from south carolina he used to be governor of south carolina and he would say that he didn't even like he would didn't even like his security detail then when he was governor and, and they were assigned to him, and it was, like, part of the whole deal because he wanted to be able to talk to people, you know, individually and not have... Yeah, and, I mean, it's a little... It makes you less approachable to yeah. have a bunch of security around you, certainly. And there were a number of members who were talking about that yesterday as well. I think what's happening now is there's sort of a consideration of everyone is really freaked out right now, and we're just going to listen to people and mm-hmm. then wait until things calm down a little bit before making serious decisions about this. Right. One of the other big things this week that's been talked about quite a lot is the Shakespeare in the Park production of Julius Caesar. Um, yes, really, that's true. <laughs> Join, joining us now is Stephen Perlberg, who covers media and politics for BuzzFeed, and I believe saw this play. I sure this did. Week. Hello. Hi. How are you? So um, this is going to sound a little silly, but um, junior year English was a long time ago. I'm not sure I remember all the specifics of Julius Caesar. Could you briefly describe sure, the plot Sure, for me? sure. So 
basically, uh, Julius Caesar returns from war, and uh, there's fear among his contemporaries that he is going to become an emperor, and Brutus and Cassius and a few of their cronies stage an assassination. Spoiler alert, they kill Caesar. Um, and then there's sort of fallout and war between Caesar's followers, uh, Mark Anthony and Octavius and Brutus and Cassius, and that sort of plays out and lots of people die and that's, and then scene. Scene, fair. <laughs> so I guess what is the, what, yeah. what's the controversy So the controversy, so, so Shakespeare in the Park, which happens every summer, um, right. The public theater sta- is staging this production, and the conceit of this staging of Julius Caesar, which isn't that unique of a staging, is it's a modern political uh, drama, and Caesar is Trump. It's very, it's very clearly Trump. It has a Trumpian. I mean, he looks like Trump. Uh, Calpurnia Caesar's wife has a Slavic accent. It's extremely <laughs> heavy-handed. Um, Octavius wears the Jared Kushner flak jacket blazer <laughs> combo. Um, during Brutus's speech, someone yells, lock him up. Like, it's, it's extremely heavy. So anyway, the, the controversy is that um, there is an assassination scene of someone who, you know, is supposed to be Trump. And it's somewhat graphic and very jarring to see that. It's an assassination of someone who, you know, is supposed to represent the president. And this really became um, a flashpoint on uh, the right and conservative Twitter and Breitbart um, and and sponsors pulled out uh, of, of the Bank of America and Delta pulled out. And it's sort of like sparked this whole argument about art and politics and, um, you know, the extent to which the public uh, theater was sort of within its rights to to do this interpretation. Yeah, I think Donald Trump Jr. like tweeted something. Like, yeah, he got the he ball tweet, rolling. He tweeted yeah. about it. Yeah, he got the ball rolling, but also it was like a very much like, when does art become politics? It was like right. kind of weirdly philosophical. Yeah. Um, this is sort of played into the far right, the sort of pro-Trump media's idea of that there's this, this, this uptick and increase in um, you know, the intolerant left and sort of like rhetoric of violence around Trump and the right. I mean, the um, the, the Kathy Griffin uh, f- art photo shoot with the staged um, mock severed head of Donald Trump start like triggered a whole um, because Kathy Griffin had ties to CNN. They were saying CNN is ISIS. And right. And I believe Time Warner was like a sponsor of the public theater. So there, there was a real attempt on the right to like tie all of this stuff um, together. But honestly, my, my review of the of the show was just that like you could almost see a scenario in which the left would get mad at this show in an alternative universe because the uh, Brutus's army was basically Occupy slash Black Lives Matter. It was supposed to be like this mock oh resistance. And it was so heavy handed and uh, you could really see a, a world in which people on the left view that as like the Pepsi commercial. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it had that, that vibe to it. So it's sort of interesting to see what seems to get the most attention on, on Twitter. I mean, if Hillary Clinton were president and it were the same production, I could see the left maybe mm-hmm. getting mad about certain, uh, and the right getting mad about certain things. Are you, are you saying that people on different sides of political aisle get mad depending on what it is? Yes, I, I am saying that. It's a controversial take. <laughs> no, like the outrage, I, I, I don't think yeah. the outrage is like genuine. M- most internet outrage isn't. But I will say that like, Watching it, it is a very jarring thing to see a staging of a 
what's supposed to be a presidential assassination. Now, whether that's supposed to make you think about art and whether that's well within their creative license, I, I mean, that, that's sort of what's up for discussion. But at least it's like provoking a discussion about that. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. And, and yeah. I, I think Sorry, the, I think the one thing that's fascinating about this is the decision immediately to pull, like I, I believe Bank of America and Delta pulled their sponsorship over this over the sort of the the controversy, and this has sort of been something that's been going on. Um, it's sort of like a, a, a new tactic, yeah. now, or not a new tactic, but a tactic that's sort of like people are kind of going to that well very quickly. Right. Uh, it happened this week with Megyn Kelly and Alex Jones. Right. And their J.P. Morgan. NB- yeah. And and it just it sort of feels like whether it's journalism or art that there's just sort of this this reflex now that I disagree with something or something's controversial, and there's this it, you know like let's find the uh, the string where the money's attached and pull it. Right. I also think if you're Delta and you're looking at this and you have your social media managers and all of a sudden they're just inundated with replies saying, you know, why are you uh, endorsing the assassination of, of Trump? And, you know, and if you're like a chief marketing officer, it's easy to look at the Twitter mentions and be like, we need to do something where right. that might not reflect the that that's sort of a narrow, uh, uh, just a snapshot maybe of what your true of what the Delta audience actually thinks about this. But there's this, and once Delta, then you get you know sort of Bank of America. A lot of a lot of times they get it gets the ball rolling. But you see these campaigns work. I mean, it it worked in the case of Bill O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. Um, the the advertiser boycott really did put pressure on Fox. I think that there is these sort of two points to this, and one is that you know, it's art. It's sort of or, or you know, it's it's very theatrical, and in some ways, even if it's jarring, it might not be offensive to some people. But then there's this other sort of narrative that that kind of ties it into the event of uh, of of Wednesday's shooting, which is this idea that there is sort of that the pro-Trump media puts forth this this you know rhetoric of sort of violence from the left against Trump, who they find just so reprehensible. And so I think that like this is a really interesting week for that to have happened right. early on. And I think I it sort of adds a whole different like layer of, of merit to the discussion of like when things are this hot in the right. political discourse, like where are where are the lines? You know, where wh- when does provocation seem, you know, irresponsible? It's kind of interesting to see this um, a few months after the uh, controversy when the cast of Hamilton spoke after the curtain call to Mike Pence. This was right after the election, and that was you know, Trump tweeted about it. Or, like not since that event has there been this sort of you know theatrical po- political event, and this is so much more serious in a way that's that's very interesting. And I think it shows just how heated the political environment has gotten. That we went from like how dare the cast of Hamilton talk to Mike Pence like that to like you know we're really discussing sort of a serious event and uh, it's just sort of interesting to see that evolution five months <laughs> four or five months, months in <laughs> the um uh, but i mean there were certainly uh, you know images and art and i don't think quite at this same um same level but of of obama and you know people the the, the rhetoric would heat up but this is feels so much more it feels so much more, maybe you just didn't hear about it as much, but it feels so much more 
intense right, right now, I'm- at least in terms of like the pressure from from one side to saying like, no, you, you like can't do that. You can't depict that. Right. And the argument from the theater world is that it doesn't turn out too well for Brutus. It's not um, the idea that this is right. a, you know, endorsement of assassination isn't true. But at the same time, when you watch the show, it's like, oh, wow, that is really, wow, you guys went there. Like the point of the show is like anti assassination. Yeah. I, right. It doesn't turn out well for the assassins. It doesn't turn out well for Caesar, but like the idea that um, Ju- Julius Caesar is not, like a pro resistance, really like Bruce dies, like Cassius dies. Sorry, but uh, so I. Spoiler. Yeah, but it, but it does it does sort of it like gets to this idea that like everything's too hot right now for for like even art that has been around for you know like hundreds of years. Like it's just like I, everyone is so jumpy, and rightfully so it seems yeah. that. That it's, yeah, it, it just seems like this is going to continue to happen with so many different things. With Romeo and Juliet, I guess. That's next. I don't know. <laughs> You've become, you're going to be a, a theater critic now, too. On top of <laughs> All right, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on. We look forward to uh, more theater reviews okay. from you. I take my bow. It's a little theater joke. <laughs> <laughs> Joining us now is Zoe Tillman, who covers legal issues for BuzzFeed News. Hello, Zoe. Hi, Kate. So earlier this week, Chris Ruddy, who's been a longtime friend of President Trump, went on PBS NewsHour and said this. There are some Republicans out there saying that Robert Mueller shouldn't be doing this job. Is, is President Trump prepared to let the special counsel pursue his investigation? Well, I think he's considering um, perhaps terminating uh, the special counsel. I think he's, he's weighing that option. I think it's pretty clear by what one of his lawyers said on television recently. I personally think it would be a very significant mistake. This would be a very big deal if the president tried to fire the special counsel appointed to investigate Russia and his campaign's ties to Russia after he fired the FBI director. Can he, in fact, fire Robert Mueller? The answer is complicated. As it always As is. As it always <laughs> is. The short answer is no. He okay. can't, unlike with James Comey, he can't sit down at his computer and write up a memo and say, I'm firing you, Robert Mueller, right now, get out. Um, what The only person right now who has authority to fire Robert Mueller is Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and that's by design and the regulation. They wanted the special counsel to be insulated from political pressure so the White House can't exercise any control over that position. Now, uh, Rod Rosenstein's boss is Jeff Jeff Sessions, and their boss is President Trump. So President Trump could go to Rod Rosenstein and say, I'm ordering you to fire Robert Mueller. And Rod Rosenstein has a couple options. He could say, OK, and fire <laughs> Robert Mueller, and that would be the end of it. He, would it be the end of it? 
Huh. <laughs> it would be the beginning. The beginning of something spectacular. <laughs> the beginning of the end. Who yeah. knows? Um, Rod Rosenstein could refuse, and then the president could fire Rosenstein, or Rosenstein could resign. Uh, in either case, the president could then go to the next highest official at the Justice Department, who's Rachel Brand, the associate attorney general, and say, I'm ordering you to fire Robert Mueller. And then it goes down a whole chain of succession. Um, the, just goes through until he gets to, to the us. janitor. Who knows? <laughs> to the janitor, right? Um, it's your turn. Yeah, the other option is that uh, right now all of this is laid out in a federal regulation. Okay. And so the other alternative route is that the president could go to Attorney General Sessions and say, I want you to withdraw, repeal the regulation that governs the special counsel. And once that process, assuming that all goes according to plan for the Justice Department and for the president, then there would be no restriction on who could fire Bob Mueller, whether it was the president or a designee, if he chose. Right. So you can't just sit down and say, Robert Mueller, goodbye. He could. I mean, he could try anything. He could try. But under the regulation, assuming he wants to follow the letter of and the spirit of the regulation and the laws, he couldn't do that. So this is one of those things that it feels, I think we were talking about it the other day, like it feels so crazy that there's like, like when this was all started, when Ruddy started floating this and people were kind of starting to write about it, does Trump want to fire Mueller or not? We were like, this is, no, no. It's too nuts. It's everything about it. If you take a step back, we've had a special counsel in place for about a month. That's <laughs> More. four weeks. Yeah. And there's already conversation about whether he should try to be fired. And then you take a further step backwards, which is we're about just six months in to a presidency. And right. we're already talking about not just the appointment of a special counsel, but the firing of that special counsel. But here's it's here's my kind of dumb question is... Say it happens, say, you know, sort of the first option that you say, Rosenstein just, you know, uh, Trump says to him to fire Mueller, and he does. I mean, is there like the appointment of another special counsel, uh, you know, to go forward in that? Or is it just sort of like, n- we don't, we're not having a special counsel now? Like, what, what happens if that goes through? We're in unchartered territory at that point. I mean, it's... Would you say no one knows anything? No one knows absolutely anything. I love um, it. It's, you know, they could, in theory, try to bring on another special counsel, but I think it would be so tainted at that point that any conclusion or resolution that would come out of that investigation, I don't know how much weight, if any, it would have at that point, given... Uh, how much interference there would have been already by the White House in the investigation. So Trump has already kind of gotten himself in in trouble in all of this. You know, the, the FBI, according to Comey, was not investigating Trump himself prior to Comey's firing. But then he fires Comey. Comey testifies that he felt pressured to drop the investigation. He, um, there are all these stories that other intelligence officials may have also felt pressure, and that's all been laid out now. And so now on Wednesday, it was reported um, by the Washington Post that Mueller is investigating Trump for obstruction of justice. 
So we, what the Post is reporting is that the investigation, the FBI investigation, will now encompass the question of whether there was any obstruction of justice by the president. It's not to say that Trump is definitely a target or that they feel like they have evidence right now to focus in on him. It's just that the scope of the, the probe has broadened beyond Russian interference in the election to address allegations and evidence that's come out about what the president was doing with respect to all of this over the past few months. That like likely makes it harder than for Trump to call for anything, correct? In theory, yes. Now that he is more directly tied to the investigation, it would certainly... um, it seems like an understatement to say this, but reflect poorly on <laughs> him and his administration were he to now try to take any steps to get rid of Mueller or in any way uh, change the nature of the investigation or the focus of the investigation. Trump kind of confirmed a lot of stuff this morning when he tweeted. <laughs> um, they made up a phony collusion with the Russian story, found zero proof. So now they're going for obstruction of justice on the phony story. Nice. I will say it's unclear to me who they who is, is they? referring to. Yeah. Because they could be the media. Yep. They could be the FBI. They could be Comey and other people he feels have wronged him. So in theory, it seemed like he was confirming at least that obstruction is part of something that Mueller is pursuing but I, I wasn't clear on who exactly he's blaming for this right right now but it did seem to be a confirmation that obstruction is on the table it has been the, I mean this week um, whether he fires him or not the sort of slow trying to uh, make the special counsel seem um, tainted I mean the sort of that a lot of people around Trump have been tweeting and talking about either Mueller's past or donations that his team has made to Hillary Clinton and to Democrats and sort of trying to like invalidate or taint the, um, you know, what they're doing right now. I think it's an uphill battle for anyone trying to take down Bob Mueller on a character or experience front. You know, this is someone who was appointed to lead the FBI by a Republican president, broad bipartisan support. He's got a long track record of public service. Uh, He was praised by Republicans and Democrats across the board when Rod Rosenstein announced he was hiring him as special counsel. So to now try and backtrack and say, well, actually, he's some partisan hack, I don't I don't think is on very firm footing. And and, right. Like every Republican senator kind of left him. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Is there is there any kind of like timeline for this? I mean, obviously, there's not actually. But at a certain point of I mean, is this something that is there a point of no return where you just, you know, you can't you can't do it? Or is he just always going to sort of be on the proverbial like block? There's definitely no timeline for Mueller's investigation, you know, for a broad, complex criminal federal probe, these can last months, these can last years. You know, it's worth pointing out that Mueller is still building his team. Again, it's only been a month that he's (laughs) been in the job and he's still hiring other lawyers from the Justice Department, from uh, the private sector. So he doesn't even 
doesn't seem like he even has a full team in place and his whole operation fully up and running. So I would suspect it's going to be months, if not years, before we see anything come out of this. And it's, you know, I was talking to some defense lawyers on Wednesday evening about the obstruction story, and they were saying that what they'll be doing is picking apart every allegation, every piece of evidence, and saying, is there anything there? So they're going to be teasing out all these little bits of string that have come out in the past six months of the administration and then proceeding on their investigation from there. All right. Zoe, what happens if he does fire Mueller? Is that like the start of the impeachment or what? I Who don't know. Yeah. I just don't know. don't know. I mean, everyone, there was a lot of hand-wringing and hair-pulling when he fired James Comey, where people said, this is the beginning of the end of a respect for our democratic institutions and the independence of our law enforcement agencies and the FBI. And we're sort of still going along we've got a new nominee for FBI director and who knows what'll happen there so if he fires Mueller it's anyone's guess what happens next I'm sure everyone will treat it with the appropriate uh restraint so I I don't think (laughs) there's anything to worry about there really everyone will freak out (laughs) there will be a mass freak out let's have no illusions about that Uh. um all right Zoe thank you so much for joining us Thanks for having me. Bye. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer and Eleanor Kagan. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production support comes from Agaranesha Chagre and Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at C. Warzel. Charlie, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Stay sane. It's Muller time.